Hey everyone, Dr. Z, welcome to the ZDoc MD show. Today I have my friend and special guest, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Welcome back to the show, Abraham. Thank you for having me. Thank so you. Abraham is a professor of medicine at Stanford and author of several books, including Cutting for Stone, which is, in my opinion, one of the great syntheses. Is that the plural of synthesis? I think so. Uh, of, uh, of medicine, art, humanity, and your own kind of biographical details. And so it's just great to have you back on the show. We talked one back a year or two, two ago, right? It's been a while in my house, and this is a lovely to be in your studio. I, so I had to repay the favor. Right? It's like an Indian thing. It's like, you come to my house, I go to your house. You know? um, and I, I love your bow tie because it reminds me so much well, of Well, you know, I was hoping that your listeners wouldn't be confused, you know, switching back and forth. We, I know we look alike and... So just avoid that. I'm, I'm the guy with the bow tie. It's a good distinguisher. Yeah, because I, I, I tried a bow tie. It didn't quite work on me. I should tell you, I make uh, rounds with the chief residents every Thursday. And uh, we go see patients. It's bedside teaching. But the very first time I meet them at the start of the year, the first thing I teach them, men and women, is how to tie a bow tie. You, so you show them that on yeah. rounds. And then most of the time, the men will wear the bow tie on their arms. And, you know, we walk into the room and seeing three or four people in a bow tie, the patient smiles inevitably. <laughs> oh, I, that's actually really yeah. beautiful. You know, you know, what's interesting is it just made me think. So now you're doing, you're, you're kind of the master of the bedside rounds, touching the patient. I like that, yes. Bringing bedside back, mm -hmm. this kind of thing, which is, which is lovely because we've, We've relied on technology for so many other things, and technology is wonderful, but that human connection. And so I wanna ask you this, because it's been on my mind. Now that everybody's wearing masks in the hospital setting, and outside of the hospital setting, but in the hospital in particular, in Stanford, I know, because my wife is there, she's saying, you know, you, you get a bunch of surgical masks when you walk in the door, and you wear them, and, and, and so on. How has that changed the interaction between not just you and the patient, because your face is covered, but you and the team when you're teaching? I think it's been much more challenging. So I have a hearing issue mm. and I wear hearing aids and I didn't realize how much I relied on people's lips to tell me what they were saying. And now that their lips are covered, and I, I believe that uh, the, the generations after us all mumble. That's just my opinion. <laughs> I, you know, I do too. <laughs> my kids especially. Yeah, So, but, it, but it's also a challenge for the patients. You know, you know, most of our patients are elderly and uh, often hard of hearing and you know, we're trying to tell them something, wear a mask, their mask, it really, you know, increases the barriers to communication. But that aside, that's amazing. I was just attending and, you know, you quickly get used to it and the body still has a lot to show you and, and you know, it's there for you to see. So that part hasn't changed very much. Well, you know, your, your, your perception of body language and um, the ritual around that has been very fascinating to read about. And what's interesting is you mentioned hearing aids. I didn't notice that you had hearing aids until you pointed it out. Now I see the very subtle <laughs> hearing aids. Yeah. And again, it all, sometimes you almost need to tune in in order to pick up those subtle cues. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's amazing. I think hearing loss is much more common than people acknowledge. And whereas most of us, as we reach a certain age, will never accept not being able to see, uh, there are a lot of people out there, uh, when I first say I have hearing aids, I often hear, oh, I'm trying to get my husband or my wife to wear hearing aids because people are picking up that their mates aren't hearing, but uh, there's a peculiar vanity around this, which I quite understand. I went through that uh, about, you know, wearing something like this. But that You know what, it's interesting because uh, with, with my in-laws, sometimes it's almost that the affected person doesn't necessarily want to hear what's being said. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, the silence is yeah. bliss. I've been waiting for this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. So we're in a strange time, you know, and part of the reason I, I was real happy to get back together with you is here you are, you're 
you're practicing at Stanford, you're a professor, you're teaching, you're also, you've finished or are working on finishing your next book, but now we're in a pandemic. And this story, this sort of narrative around what we're telling ourselves and the social contagion of fear and the social contagion of hope and all these things. And, and I thought there's no better person to talk about this stuff than you, because you can integrate it with our healthcare audience and how we can think about it. And how have you been thinking about this time? Well, you know, to be honest, I've been intrigued by this because, uh, you know, I think stories all around us, that's my bias, but I don't think there's been a moment in time when we're more engaged in story you know at one level it's the story of our cells and you know receptors and virus and that's a fascinating scientific story on its own but then it's also the story of our own unique vulnerability based on our age our underlying disease it's the story of our family you know i have two adult boys who moved back home very poignant uh, beautiful but also Vectors. with its challenges yeah <laughs> and then the story of our town our beautiful state and the the nation divided and you know, underlying all this, and then climate change and uh, smoke and fires, and underlying all this, the big recurring theme of, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, which sort of exploded. And I couldn't help but think this was really all one story, you know, all one story that had finally sort of, you know, burst through the subconscious of our, of our will, if you like, and had manifest itself in this amazing way. And I guess at another level, I was, I'm intrigued because... Uh, you know, when I first came to this country in 1974, I was living through my own peculiar story. I, I had my medical schooling interrupted. I was born in Africa in the midst of a civil war. I had to leave my medical schooling, work as a nursing assistant in uh, New Jersey for a year and a half. I didn't know you did yeah. that. So you were uh, like a LVN or a yeah. CNA? And yeah, exactly. The whole bedpan and feeding routine. And, you know, I look back on it now. I did it for a year and a half. But I look back on it now as the most uh, profound medical training I ever had because I really got to see what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 57 minutes that doctors are not in the room, you know. <laughs> and it gave me a real solidarity with uh, the nursing staff and with the you know, the nursing assistant staff, because they're the ones who really are caring for the patient, you know? You know, what's interesting, Abraham, is um, this is something that had come to me later in life. So when I started in my medical path, I was the guy who was like, oh, the nurses are calling me in the middle of the night, and it was us versus them, and we know what we're doing, and they're just there to do it. And it took some eye-opening events that yeah. opened my eyes to that. And... Um, you know, whether it was the the, the, the nurse who, because they're there, like you said, like you were, they're there with the patient when you're not, they're there. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like seeing when you see a patient at uh, at the supermarket, yeah. you see them in their street clothes, you go, yeah. this is a human being. They're not a problem to solve sitting on a bed in a gown with a bunch of nasal cannula and all that. And the nurses see that all the time. And so they would tell me things about the patient that would open yeah. my eyes. Yeah. And what's interesting now is in the role that I have, and again, because I like to make everything about me, Abraham, this is, this is, <laughs> we're talking about stories, here's my story. But I try to support nurses any chance I can to incorporate their voice. A lot of our audience are nursing. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of pushback from doctors mm -hmm. who say you're not supporting us the same what, way. What a shame, uh, because I think they're not getting it. So, you know, long before they were encouraging us to have the nurses join us on rounds. I, I don't like to begin rounds if the nurse isn't in the room. Mm. Because, you know, of all the people assembled there, they're the ones who really know what's going on and what we decide is going to influence what they have to do for the next eight hours. So it's hubris to, 
you know, just not consult them, not make them aware of it if you can. How hard has it been for you to get them in the room? Not hard. I mean, it's a challenge, uh, but but they if they can make it, yeah. and if you can make it, everybody appreciates the effort. And I think it's eye-opening for students to see. Uh, the nice thing right now at Stanford is that we're training PA students with the medical students from year one. And so, you know, we, we all have to work together. So if we're going to train together, you would think that we'd all know how to work together. But it's amazing how even if we start together, we wind up being in these very divided camps but i think uh you know team care means we all work together how, how lovely i never had that experience with pas on the team it's new it's a fairly new uh, program oh, uh, a couple wow. of years now yeah and how has it been received how's it working you know a uh, little resistance here and there but for the most part i think they're demonstrating their value they're very mature people who often have come after a bachelor's and some life experience and uh you know very focused very motivated great people yeah, you know, my experience with uh, PAs, they, when when we, we would rotate through at UCSF when I was a surgeon, sur surgeon, when I was a surgical um, in, uh, rotator as a medical student, I decided to do it at my home hospital in Fresno, California. Mm -hmm. so that's where my parents are. And I was yeah. like, oh, I can leave San Francisco and do an away rotation. And, yeah. and uh, the people who taught me all my procedures were the surgical PAs. Isn't that something? And I still, yeah. I went back recently and did a talk and I saw them and we met and hugged and it was this beautiful thing. It's like, <laughs> you taught me everything I know about mm. chest tubes and central lines and yeah. and even Foley's, you know, cause they would take me in the middle of the night and you know, they were just generous of spirit yeah. and really good at what they did. Yeah, the folks who are, you know, in one specialty, they, they, over time they can just about do it all, I would say. 10,000 hours of mastery. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, I was trying to say that, um, you know, in 74 when I was doing that, I, when I first came to America, the very first movie I ever saw in America was Jaws, which, <laughs> which took the country by storm. It yeah. was a blockbuster. The director no one had heard about uh, by the name of uh, um, Steven uh, Spielberg. Spielberg, yeah, I think it was. Something yeah, something like that. The um, no-name guy. You know, if you and then many years later, as I was, you know, sort of delving into scripts myself, I saw a storyboard of Jaws, and I realized, you know, the 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 premise of Jaws is the most ancient story in the world. It's a monster comes out of the deep, preys on a population. And one ordinary person is called to adventure and has to recruit special tools and allies and defeat the monster. And, uh, you know, in, in essence, it's a retelling of the very first story ever told, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is 2,000 years you know, BC, only discovered in 1800s, but it's a 12, 12 stone tablets, cuneiform script, and it tells the story of the hero Gilgamesh and the monster Humbaba, and it's been retold many, many times. And you know, maybe 700 AD came Beowulf, another story of you know Beowulf slaying the monster Grendel. So we've had monster stories, you know, forever, and uh, we are living through another monster story. And what I find really, I mean, no, we have a virus; uh, it's descended on us, picking out innocent people, and we're all forced to sort of find a way to, to battle this. But I think what's most intriguing to me is um, there were some really powerful lessons in the many, many, many plague stories, monster stories that we've had, whether it's uh, Camus' The Plague or Defoe's The Plague Years or Boccaccio's The Decameron or, you know, movies like Outbreak and you name it. There's just been a, so many monster scripts, if you like, 
or plague scripts. And they've had some very powerful lessons in there that I wish we had paid more attention to. Mm. Uh, so we're, we're really good at the science. I mean, I can't believe that I'm alive in an era where within a week of the virus being discovered, we have the entire genome, we know the receptors, we're starting the vaccine path. I mean, compare that to the HIV experience where I cut my teeth mm. as a physician and we're way ahead. But socially, we're back in you know the Great Plague of London because uh, both Camus and Defoe described it all. The people who roll up their sleeves and join the proceedings, those who are in denial, those who profit by it, those who undermine it. Um, you know, Defoe talks about the people who basically partied in the streets, you know, which is the equivalent of the bars that are ignoring all the rules. And, you know, I feel like it should be a must reading that all our leaders, in addition to being savvy about science, which I'm not sure they always are, need to be savvy about the social capital, the social intelligence we should be embracing to inform us about how to be right now, rather than, you know, taking on the role of one of these characters, you know? We, so it was all there. It was all there. It, we never learn from these things sometimes, you know? And, to, you know? and this idea of the plague story is interesting, because I had um, Dr. Monica Gandhi on the show, who uh, just is a lovely person, and was talking about parallels, like you're talking, with the cholera outbreak of 1832, mm -hmm. and you had two camps, the contagionists and the hygienists, right. and how they were going at each other, often at the expense of the vulnerable poor that were the biggest victims of the cholera outbreak. Yeah, um, Same idea, nothing changed. I think there's something that's un uncovered. You said it, our collective unconscious kind of comes up, whether it's in the form of protests in the street, whether it's in the form of, pro-mask, anti-mask, each shaming each other, whether it's in the form of, oh, how did this just happen to be during a political year? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like they couldn't have decided a better time to make it difficult. Yeah, you know? I mean, I actually think that plagues are not, I mean, plagues transform society, that's for sure. But plagues are not sort of some outside thing that just descended on society. They are an effect of our society, in a sense. Mm. You know, if we don't destroy rainforests, we don't encounter these strange viruses and you know, to blame this country or that country is sort of absurd. This is a consequence of globalization. Mm -hmm. And plagues change society. You know, the smallpox that the white settlers brought to America destroyed the Native American population, or they might not have been able to colonize. We might not have been here right. to have this show. <clears throat> uh, so similarly, every, every plague has transformed. The interesting thing, as we you know, come back to this issue of the seminal story, the archetypal story, it's never that the story ends with the monster being destroyed and everything is back to normal. Almost always, you destroy the monster, but you have sort of a new understanding of your life and the mm. way to go on. And the, and your, the society is fundamentally changed mm. by, this, by this sort of transition. So I think it's naive to think we're going to get back to pre-COVID and do all the stuff we were doing. Uh, we will never get back to pre-COVID. We are going to be in a completely new place, having vanquished this virus, but hopefully much more savvy about the fact that more are coming, much more cognizant of the need for our leaders to be really savvy about the social ills that come with plagues and not be surprised by them. You know, Camus says that plagues have been happening since human history, and yet every time they happen, plagues and war, we're surprised by them.
<laughs> you know, <laughs> it's really true. Yeah. It really. Hey, what you said about the social ills that come with plague, I think, is something that it's funny. And now that I think back and I reframe, like almost every episode I've done since this thing started, I'm talking about the social ills that yeah. come with plague. It just ended by a different name. Whether it's the tribalism that sprung up about. I'm on this side or that side. I'm mm. on Great Barrington's side or I'm on Jon Snow's side or I'm a, uh, versus how we're managing to really harm poor people in mm. all of this. Inadvertently or advertently, it's hard to know depending on what, and, and how we've harmed ourselves in our own psychological state, yeah. whether we're cowering in fear in our houses, wiping down our UPS packages or brazenly going out, you know, into a bar and, yeah. and without regard. It, it Again, they're both extremes. Of They are, and I actually think that it's, you know, it's a disservice to consider people evil if they're not in your camp. I mean, actually, the way I see it, and this is Camus' exact words, that evil in the world comes from ignorance. Mm. So I don't think people are doing things willfully to be evil. They're just not, not necessarily willing to get the facts that are, you know, might change their view. Well, ah, now this is something that comes up a lot. Um, I try to advocate to my audience, stop branding the other side. First of all, there exactly. aren't sides. Yeah. We have our biases and we seek to confirm them. We'll pick data that supports what we're saying. We can find it. Yeah. We can pick sides, especially with social media, which I think is a, a new twist on an old idea yeah. of yeah. polarizing into tribes. Right. It just does it much more efficiently and more seductively because it's addictive to score points on social media. I can go on Twitter right now, pick a side, Hey, I want to open schools. All right, let me show you all the data yeah. that says this is good. And then someone else will show me some data otherwise. And then someone will give me an anecdote and exactly. someone will get emotional. And the next thing you know, I'm a bad guy and they're a bad guy to me. Exactly. And what have we accomplished? Nothing. Whereas if we both understand, no, we're coming from the righteous mind, as Jonathan Haidt calls it. We're coming from a sense of morality that's our own flavor. How we interpret the world and execute that comes from an intention that's good. Yeah, exactly, well said. So I think that, you know, hopefully the data over the nine months or so will begin to sway people. I mean, we have data that's just coming out, uh, just published in Nature and I think abstracted in the Washington Post to show that the states that wear masks have had less of a problem. And I think we just need more conviction like that, that, you know, people begin to see that, uh, you know, the defiant masklessness has consequences, you know. We talked about that with Monica as well, because she's done some of that research on mask inoculum and how it lowers. Exactly, inoculum. right. Now, <clears throat> here's the twist on that. And I think there is a misunderstanding, I think, among scientists who are traditionally poor communicators. Um, you're an exception um, where we just assume, okay, we have this data. This is, what it, this is what it shows. There's no other way. And if we don't listen to people who are saying, yes, but my small business, which relies on maskless dining, is going to go under, which means I don't support my family and there's no government assistance. I mean, there was the original PPP, but there's nothing else. And they are going to have a bias against anything that Absolutely. threatens their life yeah. and livelihood. And, and it makes sense. I think you have to say, okay, I respect that. So how are we gonna deal with that nuance when we have policy? Because policy is that struggle between values. Yeah. I think that's where reading Camus and reading Defoe has been so helpful, the, the recognition that this was predictable. It's not an aberration of our society, uh, especially in a society like ours, unlike, say, a very regimented society like South Korea or Taiwan. 
you know, this everything, yeah, yeah. The, everything we're seeing was predictable. What we could have done is anticipate the consequences better and have more resources for, uh, because the real issue is economic downturn. It really isn't as much about the mass per se as people's sense of, you know, their livelihood is disappearing. Right. And, you know, focusing on that might have been a way to obviate this. And also having good examples of people, you know, wearing the masks and putting out a consistent message, you know, back and forth has been really, really confusing. It's been tough, you know, and we're in the Bay Area where we've done pretty good, actually. We've bent the curve reasonably well. Stanford yeah. never got overwhelmed. Um, yeah. And there is a lot of masking out there. There's some, you know, resistance. But oh, yeah. as Monica mentioned, you know, if you have 80% of the population wearing masks, that may be enough to create this inoculum effect. It doesn't have to be 100, yeah. but it does need consistent messaging. And that's been a problem because yeah. early on WHO, CDC, and we talked about that yeah. mixed messages, uh, Fauci, et cetera, and uh, who just so, <laughs> he's so adorable. Um, it, it's It's been tough because you and I, and, and, and I think, again, as scientists with science backgrounds, it's, it's very hard to see science either misinterpreted or abused. It really hurts, actually. Mm -hmm. One thing that you said that I loved, you said, uh, you know, that's where reading Camus is actually very helpful. So most scientists come on the show and they're like, you know, that's where looking at the literature and nature and so on. But you're actually pointing to something different, which is... The, the humanity's influence on, hey, they actually figured this out. They analyzed yeah. this in the past from a social standpoint. I and know. you can't have one without the other because how are you gonna get adherence if people, if you haven't addressed the underlying social currents? I mean, it's the most amazing paradox. So we have incredible science, and yet because we have resistance socially, the impact of that science has been quite diminished, I think. And you're seeing it at the highest levels of government. So I think that this is, a, you know, this is why we're humans. And this is why I might even say that we're likely to keep repeating these experiments, uh, you know, in different formats. But human beings being what they are, this is always going to be tricky. You know what I think is, because um, there's something you said in the beginning that I think is going to trigger people who I know get triggered by this, which is you said, we're not going back to the same normal post-COVID. A lot of people are so anxious that they feel like we are never getting out of this mess. Life is always going to be screwed up and this and this and this. But your point is- No, that's not what I meant. Exactly right. Tell us what you meant because it, well, it probably agrees with what my interpretation is. You know, it's like you're never going to be back in the same innocent world where this began. That's right. Hopefully we'll have a lot more provisos to anticipate the next thing coming down the pike and there will be one. Yeah. But also I think, uh, you know, I'm just speaking personally now. I feel like- I've had uh, many months to sort of be alone a lot of the time. And even when you're at the hospital, at some level you're alone with your mask and you know in your own room, not the cubicle full of office stuff that you're used to. And in that time has come an, uh, has come the, an ability to sort of appreciate what is precious about this life. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what, what is precious? What is it that we value the most? And I think it's going to change people in that sense. I think my relationships... Uh, are much more poignant than they ever were. I think my sense of how much time I was wasting doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. It didn't take COVID. It shouldn't have taken COVID for me to to jettison those things, you know. So mm. I think that's what I meant. Uh, we will be a new society, just as the just as after the Black Death, you know, feudalism was over. The serfs had power. You know, that's an extreme example, but in some way, we simply cannot be the same society. That is naive. 
And that's exactly what I was thinking is it's a, actually a hopeful message. It's saying- Very much so. This is what we're learning from yeah. this. Now, but in, in later then talking about, well, we also tend to repeat our mistakes. So I think though, as we progress, one interesting thing about humans is we can actually train critical thinking and self-reflective skills in people. We just haven't yet. So this idea that we can watch our minds, we can see when a, an impulse arises that comes from a place of our own bias and watch it and go, okay, what if I let that go and listen to all the data and actually analyze it critically? Mm -hmm. What if I can apply critical thinking to the latest conspiracy theory and go through and go, oh, does this actually pan out? And those are tools we don't give people, but they're available, they're on offer. And if we taught our students that, if we taught our kids that, if we started to come out of this in a, in a way that changed the way we critically think while respecting that we are fundamentally emotional, story-driven, unconscious creatures, yeah, yeah. That, that would be helpful. I mean, I think Santayana said years ago that people who don't understand history are forced to repeat it. In a sense, I think we're always repeating history. We're always, I mean, we would never have a war after the first one if we'd learned anything. You know, there shouldn't have been a WW2. Right. But I think it's, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's one element of our being alive, our each having our own opinions, that we will have conflict. And, you know, an advanced society might have the tools to self-reflect and get their get themselves out of it but very often not the the loudest voice wins and you know so i think this is sort of what history has shown us and we may be condemned to repeat it but in different forms not quite as obviously as the previous form mm. yeah. you know it, it makes me think of steven pinker and his ideas that in general we're progressing in general society is becoming more rational, a little more scientific, a little more enlightenment values. But I think one thing that Pinker leaves out, and this is my own editorializing, is that if we became more spiritual, and I don't mean that in a dogmatic, religious way, I mean, if we actually focused also on, well, what's our meaning and purpose, connection, what's our true identity in the world, what are we? I think that would then empower a better understanding of how to behave wisely in the world uh, in settings like this. Because I think the next pandemic, this pandemic is a rounding error on what can actually happen with an airborne aerosolized virus with a high RO and mortality that's quite high across age groups. And I think this was a warm up. So when the next one comes, we'd hope that we can wisely go, okay, we need to behave very systematically right now up front rather than drawing out half measures. And, yeah. yeah, no, I think you said it. In fact, uh, one of the things that I think will make us change after this virus or during this virus will be the the sheer impact of the mortality. I mean, there will be a point. I mean, it's become a cliche to read about, oh, I was against this until my father got COVID mm. and died, or oh, I couldn't understand. You know, so people sometimes need personal trauma to really come around. Till then, it's an abstract mask versus no mask or, you know, virus versus no virus. So unfortunately, we're reaching that pain point very rapidly. We have 1300 something healthcare workers who've died mm -hmm. and that to me that's a you know that's the number that really I ache for because these are courageous people who showed up to work every day whatever their opinions on on the virus they they had to come to work and they came to work let's talk about that a little because uh in the early days of this that was a real stand that we wanted to take here is like hey you guys in leadership and across across leadership, whether it's political, whether it's hospital, whether it's administrative, whether it's supply chain, had warning for this to the degree that you did. You, you have one job, which is to keep us staffed and safe and okay. 
and you didn't do it. So we're gonna hold this accountable. Like we are not gonna forget this when the pandemic's over because we're gonna come do our jobs. We're gonna show up. This is what we signed up for, but we didn't sign up to be abandoned and on the front lines. And so it became very important in those 1300 lost lives, the lost on the front lines, you know, uh, reporting yep. is so powerful. What's also a good hopeful story on that is that it is now 1300 and not 13,000 because we realized in hospitals, if you wear a mask, if you wash your hands, right. if you do the right precautions, yeah. you are relatively safe. Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, we've had a scattering of employees who have become positive, mm -hmm. but Stanford, especially yeah. of late, almost all of them have been outside the hospital. Right. So paradoxically, I feel safer in the hospital because you know everybody's gowned and uh, and tested also. Yeah. Patients are tested too, but even so, I mean, there were patients who slipped through the cracks who were negative at admission but positive later and sure. uh, no one knew and you know so i had to go through one of those but even so all of us uh, were fine so i think um you know we're we're fortunate in healthcare but it doesn't diminish the sense of heroism that i sort of see in the young hospitalists who you know were there from day one when the hospital was not advocating masks for everybody and you know uh, they sort of took a lot and my heart's really go out to them and I'm so proud of them. Yeah. That's just lovely, yeah. a lovely sentiment. And uh, you know, I have to say, cause I'm, I'm doing a talk for a physician group in Long Island next week, virtual talk. And I got on a phone with their uh, leadership and you know, they said, listen, the reason we wanna have you come and talk is because these were the people there, you know, they, they, they've suffered trauma. That's like, right. They've yeah. lost colleagues. Yeah. They've lost, we forget that They've lost patience in a way that they can't go to the funeral. They can't say goodbye. They can't see the family. It, yeah. it, it is such a deep trauma. Yeah. And so in New York, people are quite aware of what this thing can yeah. do. Now, since everything is local and even the IFR, the infection fatality rate is locally variant, right? Because how, how much communal housing is there? Multi-generational housing? What's the healthcare infrastructure like? It changes. So somewhere in the middle of nowhere, central part of the country, rural town, you've not encountered it, you haven't felt it. The health, even the healthcare professionals are denying that it's a thing because they haven't seen it. Exactly, yeah. And this is yeah. natural human yeah. response. I mean, it brings us back to story. I feel like um, you've seen them and I've seen them in a profusion of personal narratives from nurses and physicians mm. and others on the front line. I think we have a human, uh, you know, a, a human sort of compulsion to tell stories because stories are how we make sense of the world. Stories are how we communicate to our children from their very earliest days we're telling them stories and they, they sort of begin to understand the world in the metaphor of story. So I think it's important for us to dissect the story we're, we are dissecting right now. It's important for individuals to sort of frame the story, and that might be a year from now, to sort of frame the story of their COVID experience. What was it for them? What does it really mean? And you know, what is the epiphany? It might not be clear right now. Hey, sorry to interrupt this episode, it's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also wanna hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at zdogmd.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me and we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you wanna be a part of this community and support the show, 
join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we gonna transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They'll, they're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. Uh, and this is why I say it's not just that the virus went away, but those young house staff in Long Island are never going to be the same long after the virus went away. This will be a seminal experience of their lives. Uh, the HIV experience was a, you know, a life-changing experience for me to take care of those young men in that era. It informed everything I did. Monica said the same thing about her HIV experience because she heads Ward 86 in San Francisco General and, and said, you know, even, even how do you talk about public health things like masks? How do you talk about condoms? You don't say, you know, you better wear a condom or you're right. a bad person. That's yeah. gonna backfire. There's yeah. a way to do it. Back, back to the story thing, you know, the narrative, the story, it is, it's the fundamental human driver. You don't yeah. see dogs telling stories to each other, although we may not perceive it. Yeah. Maybe they do it in a body language way, in a way that we don't perceive, but humans do it. And it actually drives so much of what makes us good doctors and nurses, because, and, and this is where, again, I have a beef with the EHR. It's turned a story, which our note used to be, it used to be just telling a story to ourselves. Yeah. Like, hey, this is what's going on with Bob today. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he played tennis, his CD4 counts 12, yeah. but he's having trouble. Now it's like a boilerplate ransom note cut and paste. Yes, indeed. It's not a narrative anymore. Yeah. And yeah. I worry about that. When we ran our clinic, we actually had to build our own EHR with our partners, Iora Health which unfortunately had the name Iora Clinical Information System or ISIS, which this was pre-ISIS. Uh, and they wanted to change the name. And I'm like, don't change the name. They're the ones who suck. <laughs> Just keep it. But the idea is it was narrative-based. Yeah. So it told the story of the patient and the story of each of their problems. Yeah. So congestive heart failure had its narrative. Right. Hey, it started with this idea that he was using a lot of pillows and yeah. wasn't able to keep up with his grandkids, you know? You know, Bob Wachter says about the MRE, he says that we should have a big box at the bottom of every note that says, and now what do you really think? <laughs> because with all the cut and paste, you know, you, you can easily miss what, what are they really thinking, you know? Yeah. What, what about this note is different from yesterday? Exactly. Hard to tell. Bob wrote a great a chapter in his book about that, actually. That, that was really well done. Yeah, he really uh, nailed the problems with the EHR. And again, you don't want to be a Luddite about it. You're not saying don't use technology. Exactly, yeah. You're saying, wait, we're humans. So yeah. have this thing expressed. You know, the other thing, I, I don't know if we talked about this the last time we talked, but the idea of story, language, writing, they're tied together. So I have this theory, and I've, it's based on other people's work, that there's a cognitive effect of writing with your hand when you're listening to a patient or whatever that is not replicated by typing a note. And that cognitive effect is lost in an EHR for better or for worse. We don't know the effect of it. But I know this, when I was doing hospital medicine at Stanford, I would go into the patient's room with a clipboard and I would take notes on them. And when I'd hear, we talk about story, when I hear the story 
from the primary who was admitting them direct or from the ER doc, I would write the aspects of the story in my hand. Then I would talk to the patient, I'd write in my hand, I would make that little box with the labs, I would circle what I thought was important. Then later at night, I'd go to the computer and I'd pull up a template <laughs> and I'd fill in the parts that I thought yeah. was important. But without that writing, I, I yeah. wouldn't have known that patient's No, story. I think that's well said. In fact, I, I have this saying that I write in order to understand what I'm thinking. You know, so That's I might well write said. an essay for, I might be commissioned to write an essay for something, an op-ed. And, you know, I can take a walk on the beach, say, and, you know, formulate my thoughts. But there's something magical about the act of, you know, putting your rear end in the chair and sitting down to write. Uh, the muse only comes to you when you're doing that. And I often find that in the act of writing, I I sort of break through into an understanding, a, a sort of a meta understanding that I don't think I could have ever, ever ever have gotten by just walking and thinking. So there is something magical about writing. I mean, it doesn't have to be, in my case, just using a pen, but the act of writing out a thought as opposed to articulating it or, you know, thinking it yeah. takes you somewhere different. And I'm a big believer in that. This is fascinating because I find the muse and this idea of creation to be fascinating. Yeah. The flow state that you can attain when you're exactly. open to this yeah. source of creativity. Yeah. When I went to your house the last time I saw, and we didn't show all this on the video, but you know, you had a setup where on the wall were these beautiful drawings and a kind of a connection of a web of the characters of the book you're working on now. And it was visually laid out, but then there were words and it was dense and you, and, and, it was beautiful to behold because I saw a glimpse into how you accept the muse a little bit. And it's different for everyone, right? It's different from everyone. I think, uh, you know, I, I sometimes feel that I'm I'm dreaming my way through this novel, you know, <laughs> but at a certain point, the novel is so real yeah. that every morning I have to, you know, re-enter the dream and looking at those figures and, you know, I sort of give myself permission to re-enter that world. But you have to be disciplined. Uh, Somerset Mom said uh, famously that the muse, uh, he said, the muse strikes every morning, but I have to be in the chair at 9 a.m., thankfully. Or so, you know, there was some, <laughs> some, something he said that pointed out that you still need the discipline of being there and doing it, uh, you know. That's, what, what you said is important. Uh, Vinay Prasad and I talked about this a little bit, this idea of the diligence, the work, the 10,000 hours of training, are necessary but not sufficient exactly. to channel this muse. And we call yeah. it a muse, you can call it creativity, you can call it right brain. Empty, right brain. Yeah, yeah. I like to even think of it now in terms of, that I've learned in meditation, which is when you silence the mind, you are nothing but this empty potential. And that potential is constantly creating. Absolutely. It's creating yeah. thoughts, it's creating images, it's creating stories, it's creating connections. And if you close your mind to it or you've never trained your mind to accept, then you're not in the way of, I forget who it was that she did a TED talk that was beautiful, like, like Water for Chocolate, the author of that, did a TED talk where she talked about this, being in the path of this tornado that's coming. And if you're not up early enough to stand in the path of it, it's not gonna hit you. It's not gonna hit you, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's actually profound. And I think coming back to something you said about giving people the tools to question things, if, you're, if your mind is never silent, I mean, we are almost addicted to our phones. You know, they're, they're, we can't sit on the pot yeah. without you know, flipping through. And at some point we're missing an essential dialogue with ourselves. So we have this, apparent reality of who we are and who we present to society. And we actually begin to think, this is really who we are. 
And only through quietening the mind, as you're doing through meditation, do you begin to appreciate that there, you know, that is all just the front of you. Mm. That is all just the reactionary part of you. And if you don't quieten the reactionary part, you'll never get to, you know, the, the real you who might have an opinion about this, entirely different from all this chatter out front. So, you know, I, I often think a great meditation technique is not my invention, is to ask yourself, who is the person behind this watching you chatter away? And that's where you want to get. It's very hard to get there. I'm going to take it one level deeper. That's the self-inquiry of who am I? Who am I really watching here, right? And that's yeah. a, a witness, a witnessing consciousness. Witnessing oh, this. Everything's arising, it's a witness. But you know what's crazy is there's one level further, which is what's witnessing the witness. In other words, even the witness is an appearance in something further back and even more empty of content, but more infinitely um, yeah. creative. And in accessing that, so, so just a quick side, when I do my shows, I prepare by reading about something, by thinking about it, by walking around and going, what is, what, how do I believe about this based on this data and what I think and what do I wanna say, but I can't really say what I wanna say. Then I just go live, I press the button, I look at that lens right there and I get into a state where the mind empties and I'm just talking <laughs> and for better or for worse. So sometimes it's disjointed and crazy and sometimes it's exactly what I really meant. Uh, the real I is just coming out. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to do that and have people occasionally appreciate that. Yeah, I think when you get back there, all the way back there to that, to that bare state, when you come back out, you, you, you have this tremendous empathy and love for mm -hmm. everything you see. You know, half the conflict that we're dealing with is you know, the inability to really be in the other person's shoes or have love for them or empathy. I mean, if you, if we can't awaken that in the soul of people, all the other stuff falls apart. And uh, how do you awaken that? I think you remind them of, you know, the existence of that inherently in their lives, in their families, and help them extrapolate from that. Not easy to do, not easy to oh, do. Oh, you're getting at the heart of this. When I said, Earlier, I said, what we need back is a kind of a non-dogmatic spirituality. We need love. And we need love, we need that's love. what it is. Yeah. Now, now people will go, oh, couple of bald Indian guys <laughs> talking about love, like this is basically guru central. But, but I think you're missing, they're missing a bigger piece, which is loving kindness, this, this will compassion, this idea that you can recognize suffering, you can recognize common shared humanity, and you can have a burning desire for that other person, no matter how other they are, to be happy, at peace, and um, full of love themselves, that comes from recognizing that primal state exactly. that we all share. We you all and I share. share that same exact state. Uh, you know what else we share, which might be the real epiphany of this of this COVID, is that we're all mortal. Mm. You know, uh, a rose is a beautiful thing, only because it withers and dies. If a rose is state the way they were forever, they would be weeds, they would be a nuisance. And so similarly, I think uh, human life is so poignant. And for many of us, we manage to live most of our days not even imagining that we are mortal. Mm. And yet, uh, I think with COVID has come a sense of, you know, time is precious. So when we get through this, uh, anything you wanted to do, do it. Mm. Anything you wanted to say, say it. Don't waste time on hate, uh, you know? Enjoy the fruits of your, of your love and your labor. 
That's the message. I wish more people would get that message, especially online. You know, like you said, we're addicted to our phones. We don't have that space to be with ourselves. You know, they they, they say, um, I forget who said this and I forget the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, you're never really gonna have things together, I'm paraphrasing, until you can be alone in a room with yourself for hours at a time. Yeah. And not necessarily with your thoughts, your thoughts are just appearances, with your real self. And that means, not being fully addicted to this, right. uh, not constantly being plugged in, and then recognizing this idea. And I think this is our opportunity. Like what, 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 this idea of mortality. So again, I keep talking about Monica Gandhi because she had a, a real effect on me. At the end of our second interview, she said, oh, by the way, I lost my husband, and she's my age, lost my husband who's a cardiologist to cancer a month before the pandemic struck. My, and I have two young boys that are my kid's age. My understanding of mortality is acute. This pandemic, you either live through it as if you're constantly afraid of that mortality and you're living in fear, or you recognize that we are all going to die and you live as if that's the case. Exactly. And I thought it was beautiful. And and, um, this can teach us that. Right, but I tell you, there's so many of my uh, people who watch the show who message me and say, "I'm so racked with anxiety. I'm so afraid. I'm afraid to leave my house. I already had generalized anxiety or panic or whatever yeah. trauma, and now this has made it that much worse." Yeah. Now, how do you how do you think about that? Well, you know, I have advice for uh, you know a lot of my colleagues and my staff, and we we talk about this a lot. We have a very sort of robust, you know circles where we discuss all the things that are going on. But my advice is, remember such a thing as the magic of reading. You know, uh, there is something very special that happens when you read a book. You take those little signals on the page that we call words, and in your mind they create this movie, and you escape to this very, very beautiful place. But it's not just an escape, it's an education. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, a novel is the great lie that tells the truth about how the world lives. Mm. Uh, that's a great quote by Dorothy Allison. So, you know, you read to expand your horizons. You're you're stuck in the house, afraid to go out. Okay, don't go out, but take up uh, The Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Travel to Macondo or wherever, you know. I think that these are the ways we soothe ourselves. Put the phone away, mm. especially at bedtime, at least an hour before bedtime. Put it away. Um, Try to get in better shape. Try to eat better, but do it in a forgiving way. Don't beat yourself up if you, mm. you know, went and had that ice cream. So, I think there's a lot of need for us to forgive ourselves, be kinder to ourselves. The place where love begins has to be with us. Mm. You know, loving ourselves. Mm. And that's the hardest. Uh, that's the hardest thing. You know, they they, they have these uh, meditations, uh, meta loving kindness meditations, and. Uh, one of the last targets you target, you target people that you love really closely and you yeah. wish them well and feel this sense of love and it's a kind of a visualization. And then you turn that ultimately on yourself. Yeah. And that is the hardest thing because you know so much unworthiness and self-hate exactly. and regret yeah. and all this and turning that beam a spotlight on yourself when you feel it finally and you go, no, you know what? Yeah. I'm doing the best I can. If I actually forgive myself, I can be better to others. How can I forgive others if I can't forgive myself? Because exactly. I'm holding myself to this yeah. impossible standard. And I think the same with fear. I mean, we are all fearful of this. We're all fearful of what it's going to do to our families, to our lives, to our livelihoods. And and courage is not 
the absence of fear, courage is that you somehow go on despite the fear. Mm. I cannot go on. I must go on. I go on. You know, it's that sort of, and every time you do that, you build that muscle, you are proving something to yourself. Despite the fear, you're still going on. Mm, it's like a resiliency yeah. muscle. Yeah. And yeah. this too shall pass. This too will pass. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, you said something about story and reading. I have a question. Do you think that listening to an audiobook is the same, different, interchangeable? So I'm actually enjoying listening a tremendous amount. I yeah. do a lot of listening. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a different experience for the listener. I mean, I'm enjoying it in a very different way. It's made me much more conscious as a writer, technically, of the realization that this is probably going to be read aloud mm. as often as it's going to be read. Mm. And uh, I think as a writer, it's always good practice to read your work aloud because something that looks good on the page you know, might be off, there might be an alliteration that you didn't intend or a little, you know, rhythm being off. But I'm much more conscious of it now. Mm. Uh, from the listener's point of view, I don't think it makes any difference, um, reading versus listening. I do find myself uh, a little more patient with these long expositions in a novel, for example, mm. only because I have no choice. I can't quite skip ahead because I don't know what's ahead. <laughs> Whereas on the page, you can sometimes see, oh, you know, here is Melvin. He's going to go on about whale blubber for the next 15 pages. Uh, oh, this is going to I suck. Got it. <laughs> but when you're listening to it. When you're listening, you have no choice. And sometimes as a consequence, you you sort of get a deeper appreciation of how worthwhile it was to keep that in there. You, you know, know I, I recently rediscovered your novel, Cutting for Stone, on audiobook. And there's a gentleman with an Indian accent who reads it. And the way that he says the names even, Sister Mary Joseph prays, yeah. Sister Mary Joseph prays. And it becomes like a mantra almost and you're listening to it and it just draws you into the story in a way that's different than reading. They're both, they both have their value, mm -hmm. but I think that it's fun to experience both. You, you know, you mentioned um, Beowulf uh, early on in Grendel and, and uh, in high school, I wrote my senior English thesis for AP on, uh, on Beowulf huh. and its parallels to Lord of the Rings and how Tolkien wow. had actually been a Beowulf scholar huh. as well as a linguist and had invented all these languages and, and how those that archetypical paradigm of the monster, the yeah. other yeah. comes into the village and, and mm. Sauron is the same thing or evil it comes in and how the call to adventure, which you said, you know, you're called then and the hero comes through. And now to see my nine-year-old pick up, you know, we I read her The Hobbit oh, during the pandemic and she was like, oh, that was good. What's this big thick book you have well, that's the combined Lord of the Rings. It's this thick. I don't think you'll want to read that because it's a lot of names and it's just, can you read it to me? Wow. Like, oh, wow. Good All right. Yeah. Here, let me crack this thing open. <laughs> you know, an unexpected party, you know, long expected party, go back. And she is riveted to the story. Wow. That's it, a good sign. It's that's really wonderful. great. And it's yeah. this imaginary kind of, and, and but the themes are so important. This theme mm. of, of evil coming in and how do you respond to it? Power and the seduction of power. Yeah, yeah. You know, very timely so stuff. We're living the story right now for mm. all the angst that we're going through. Uh, you know, these are the times when, you know, they say in writing that a character is never fully defined until the character makes a decision under pressure. Mm. So these are character defining moments for all of us. As a society, we are under tremendous pressure. Mm. And the next action we take individually 
is really what defines us. So you can describe a character and his height and his weight and his color and, you know, all the pretty things he says, but it's only when he's faced with a crisis and he has to make a decision. Character is defined by decisions made under pressure. Mm. That's us. That's a good way to think about it. And, you know, we have to add to that is, I think there are a lot of people who regret decisions they've made under pressure or have made decisions that they don't feel comfortable. No, that was not the decision I should have made. I think the first step is to forgive, forgive that. Forgive yourself, right? Because you made the only decision you could have made in that moment with everything that you had. Yeah. In that moment, you made the decision you made. Now, right. what are you gonna do next? Exactly. That's, that's what matters. And there is only this moment and the next. There that's isn't right. a past. There is only this moment. There's only us here now. And, you know, I think too often we're watching commentary on TV, which I rarely watch. I'm just, you know, just amazed how much of it is about the past and about a future. And so little of it is about the now, the this moment, you know? You, you, again, you're hitting on these very timeless spiritual themes of there's only the eternal now moment, and yet, so that so the past is a tracing and the future is an anticipation in now. Oh. Everything is happening now. You know, there was a guy um, I saw recently talking about his experience using a drug called um, 5-DMT, 5-MeO-DMT. So it's derived from a toad. And um, he said that on this drug, you, your ego uh, dissolves. I've never done this drug. Ego dissolves and you're left in an eternal present moment as everything. And he said, he realized he came back and he said, wow, I've been this eternal now here and now forever imagining worlds forever here and now <laughs> here and now the dinosaurs happened here and now the big wow. bang happened here and now forever it's me wow. doing and that resonated with me in a way that i almost i was like oh my gosh that feels weirdly right <laughs> and also terrifying but yeah. weirdly so it, again it, it gets to that point of yeah. if you live in the now you can be more mindful of what a future now would look like exactly yeah in fact, I have a line, a through line in my novel that is, the past is unreliable, only the future is certain. And I mean, there's some truth to that. The past yeah. is unreliable because we make of our past whatever story we want. You would think, well, I know this happened and this happened. Oh yeah, well, but the spin you put on it is all yours. And only the future, the fact that it's gonna unfold is certain. Mm. The past is unreliable. That's brilliant. Actually, it makes me think again of this idea that if we're just here and now, we're inventing the past every second. Every second, we are. we're recreating it uh, yeah. based on some tracing we have in now about, you know, it's really cra everything we've been through, every life experience, all our training, every patient we've seen, we're recreating it now, yeah. you know? It happened in a now, yeah. we think, but man, and that really reframes it. In any second, you, you can be a new person. In any second, the story that you tell yeah. yourself can be different. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How do you think about the narrative I, the person who is the subject of your story, your internal storytelling of who you are? I mean, how do we construct that? Well, I think the narrator is constantly changing. You know, mm -hmm. the narrator is struggling to find uh, himself. The narrator is too often relying on the past to frame the future. You know, so I think we're all searching, but it's part of the wonderful mm. quest. I mean, sometimes I just marvel at this business of being alive. And I think, you know, 
do dogs and cats have these sort of existential moments where they where they wonder, hey, what am I doing in this world? Am I supposed to be working on this or is this what I should be doing? You know? uh, not that I would trade places with them for a moment. Uh, right. But by the way, um, dogs are just great examples on how they treat each parting as though it's forever. Right. And they treat each coming back of yours as though you've been gone for years. It's a quality that I think we could easily embrace. It's ah. a sense, it's a bit of that in the now, now kind of thing, you know? The now moment, yeah. right? You know, I think I feel like the bigger the brain you have, the more baggage you have of self-referential thought. Exactly. We create a narrator yeah. in our mind that we refer to this little mini-me in yeah. our, in our yeah. head. And the dogs maybe don't have that or they have a very rudimentary version, right? Yeah. Dolphins maybe have a more advanced version of it. Much uh, more. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. interesting. Dogs too and cats, the way they die is interesting. You don't see that they're, you know, terrified and that they're self-referentially. You don't get that sense. You get the sense that yeah. they're accepting this moment. You know, there's a scientist in uh, UCSD uh, by the name of Ajit Verki. You might know his work, but uh, you know, he postulates that um, humans are the only creatures, pretty much, who are aware of their mortality and still manage to go on. <laughs> that's you know? true because how yeah. can a dog know that? a dog or I mean, I mean even they say elephants have memory right, and seem right. to mourn their young but by and large most other uh, species act at least as though uh, you know they have they, they have no awareness of their mortality mm. if they did it would probably cripple them mm. we have awareness and yet we manage to go on in fact I think it's the reason we make our lives what they are and so special because we are aware that uh, you know life is a terminal condition. <laughs> you know, as Doris Lessing said, "Whatever you're gonna do, do it." Yeah, don't wait. Yeah, we're we're this instantiation of being a human is exactly that fascinating. Sometimes I'll sit and think about that in meditation. That I'll look at a at a at a bird sitting outside my window, and I'm meditating. And I often do eyes open meditation, so I'm taking in things, trying to be non-judgmental and just perceive. And I'll see a bird and I'll imagine me as the bird is in the moment looking around. And then I'll come back in my body and it's just this multi-layered like, yes, oh, indeed. there's a narrator, there are thoughts floating, there's anticipation, there's distraction. And underneath it all is this being, this sense of I am, like I'm here, yeah. I'm having an experience. And how incredibly rich and complex that is. And then We'll take a patient and reduce them to a one-line, a one-liner, a one-liner. Yeah. You know, thirty-seven-year-old with chest pain. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a shame. Or twenty-seven-year-old drug seeker. Yeah. 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 You know the 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 labeling and the more malignant sort of one-liners that you can put on people. Indeed, you, indeed. You've reduced this complex suffering to drug seeker. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. a strange time this is, Isn't you know. It? But uh, the the blessings are just this: getting to talk to you, getting to. You know, think like this. I don't know that we have this luxury at any other time to think about the spiritual in the context of medicine quite the way we're doing right now. It is special time. It it uh, it it highlights those silences between what we do and say. Yes. You know, when everything is poignant. Yeah, man, Abraham, what a joy! Such a joy. A treat for me. Really a joy. Thank you for being with us. You're very welcome. Aren't you glad I wore the bow tie? You know what? Without that, there'd be so much there, confusion here. I wouldn't be able to edit it because I'd get confused as to who was talking. <laughs> um, guys, 
I don't know what to say. I say, share this video and we're gonna try to have more conversations. Like these are the conversations I think that they matter for me. So even if, even if they don't affect even another person, they affect me in a way that makes me more whole in the moment. So thank you. And you know what we did? Mm. We were entirely in the now. I think you're right. The whole time. You know, I have to, can I tell you something? So doing this, I mean, you see this studio, there's a lot of stuff here. There's nobody helping me. So a lot of times I'm looking at the box there to make sure it's still recording. I'm watching the screens up there to make sure that we're still framed right. Nothing is glitching because stuff glitches. And I'm, my mind is multitasking in all these different ways while trying to talk and be focused. During this conversation, I don't think I did that. <laughs> I'm just like, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more about that's Beowulf. That's I felt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really lovely. Um, Thank you for doing all you do and thank you for bringing this humanity back to what I think medicine always has been, which is this art and science combined. It's a, a distinctly human venture. Thank you for what you do because you take our narrow world and you make the whole world seed. So thank you for that, very precious. And after this, we both send each other a $10 check for blowing smoke up each other's butts. <laughs> you and got I it. love it because it's honest and authentic. My brother, thank you again and we out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community really. And we support and love each other and share again through our own experience how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.